Well, since we have been going through uh, the book of Acts, and now we've come to Acts chapter 16, or we're in Acts 17 this morning, but last week we're in Acts 16, we started in Acts 16, the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. And so through Acts chapter 16, we were following Paul on this missionary journey, and now in Acts 17, we are also continuing to follow Paul on his second missionary journey. In particular, Luke focuses on Paul's ministry in our text this morning, he focuses on Paul's ministry in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. And as we examine Paul's ministry in these two cities, an apparent and dominant theme emerges, and it is this, the centrality of God's Word in gospel ministry. The centrality of God's Word in gospel ministry. Now, if you're here this morning and perhaps you would say, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian or not, or, whether, or maybe you are a Christian and you say, I've been a Christian for many years. Either way, the success of Paul's ministry is undeniable. As we think about Paul in the first century and what he did, the missionary journeys he went on, the ministry that he engaged in, we realize that as a result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, the Roman Empire was never the same. And ultimately, it is also true that the world has never been the same. And so with that fact in mind, we might ask ourselves the question, what was the key to Paul's success? How did Paul do it? What was it that produced such fruitfulness and brought such change to the Roman Empire and ultimately the world? Well, my friends, it's apparent from the book of Acts, and in particular from our text this morning, that Paul's ministry was fundamentally a ministry of the Word. Now, why is that important for us to understand? Well, if you're here this morning and personally you desire to experience something of the life transformation that took place in the lives of those who sat under Paul's ministry then it is critical that you understand the life-transforming power of God's Word. Or perhaps you're here this morning and you have a desire to influence others so that they might experience this type of change. Then again, it is critical that you understand the life-transforming power of God's Word. With that in mind, I want us to examine Paul's ministry in Thessalonica and Berea. And as we do so, we will consider three characteristics of God's Word. Okay, this will serve as our outline this morning. We'll consider its nature, its ministry, and its work. Its nature, its ministry, and its work. First of all, let's consider the nature of God's Word. Now, as we do this, I want you to notice how Luke speaks of the Scriptures. In four verses that I'm about to read, Luke refers to the Scriptures four times. Okay, so look there in verse 2, and we read these words. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. There's the first reference. Go, skip down to verse 11, and we read these words. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word, there's the second reference, with all eagerness, examining the scriptures, there's the third reference, daily to see if these things were so. Then skip down to verse 13. But when the Jews learned that the word of God, there's the fourth reference, was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. So you see here that in these verses, Luke uses four words to refer to the same object. Scriptures, Word, Scriptures, and Word of God. 
And he uses these words interchangeably, but they all refer to the same object. Now that's important to notice because in noticing that, what we see here is that in, in noticing how Paul describes this reality of the Bible, the words that he uses or Luke uses to describe uh, the reality of the Bible, we see underneath that Luke and by extension Paul's understanding of the nature of Scripture. For Luke and for Paul, the Scriptures or the Bible is the Word of God. And they speak of the same object interchangeably, right? The Bible, the Scriptures, it is the Word of God. They can refer to it as either. So that means for Luke and for Paul that when the Scriptures speak, God speaks. And when we read the Scriptures, we hear the voice of God. So to read the Bible is to hear God, to hear the God of the universe. Therefore, that has significant implications for the way Paul did ministry. You notice as you go through the book of Acts, as you look at his ministry here in Thessalonica and in the city of Berea, that Paul's ministry was marked by a conviction and by an authority. Because there was this underlying assumption in Paul's ministry that he wasn't just making this stuff up as he went. He wasn't just sharing the latest cultural trends. But rather, the God of the universe has intervened in time and history and given us a divine word. And there was this underlying conviction and assumption that this word is authoritative, decisive, powerful, and that if it is embraced, it results in life and eternal salvation. In a few weeks, we're going to be uh, starting our outreach series, and the outreach series is entitled, It Is Written. We're going to be unpacking more of these ideas as we look at Scripture and what the Bible has to say about the Bible, and I hope you'll be here for that. But for now, I think it's sufficient to say that the apostles understood the Scriptures to be God's Word. And that was a foundational conviction that undergirded their entire ministry. Now notice also as we're thinking about the nature of the Bible, that it is the Word of God, notice that it is this authoritative Word that then reveals to us the Gospel, the good news that God has purposed to redeem us. We see this in verses 2 and 3 of our text. Look there and we read, And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving, here it is, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So what was it, what was it in this authoritative word that Paul was so eager for his audience to hear and grasp? What was the message of this authoritative word that was so important? Well, you see it there in the text, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So most of the people, understand this, most of the people that Paul was talking to here, they were in a synagogue, and so they knew something about the Scriptures, but Paul was actually asking them to look at the Scriptures and understand the Scriptures in a whole new way. 
Paul was trying to point them to the reality that the scriptures had a grand theme that connected them all together. And it was this idea that God's plan was that the Christ, God's Savior, would come and suffer and die and be resurrected in order to save a people for himself. You know, it's common even today if we think about, well, how does this relate to the situation and context that we find ourselves in? It's common even today. Oftentimes you will speak with folks that may have some knowledge about God or some knowledge about Jesus or the Bible. They may have pieces of gospel truth kind of floating around in their minds, but they lack a full comprehensive sense of what the Bible is all about of what the gospel is, and how the scriptures lead us to a relationship with God. And that's why it's so critical, as Paul is doing here, that's why it's so critical that we take the scriptures and we show people, we show people that the Christ, according to the scriptures, must suffer. And why must he suffer? Why is it necessary? Because he is the only one who can pay the penalty for our sins and bring us back into a relationship with God. You know, on a number of occasions, I've had the opportunity to share with a non-Christian friend um, the bridge diagram. I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with that, but the bridge diagram is one way. It's a tool to explain to people the kind of big picture of the Bible and the message, central message of the Bible. And the bridge diagram, basically, you draw it out on a piece of paper. On one side, you have God, and he's kind of on this cliff. And on the other side, you have man, and he's on a cliff. But there's a huge chasm in between the two, which, which represents the fact that man and God are separated from one another because of man's sin. And then you can draw bridges. You know, we always try to bridge that chasm, but the bridges always come up short in terms of trying to, man trying to make his way to God. We can do that through religious activities or through good works or whatever it might be, but we always come up short. And then in the chasm, you draw a big cross, and the cross connects the two. And that's representative of the fact that Jesus came to die and pay the penalty for our sins. And he is the only way through faith in Christ that that chasm can be uh, overcome. And through faith in Jesus, we can be restored back to a right relationship with God. You know, many people, many people hear these ideas that Jesus died for our sins, or they know that Jesus died on the cross. But may, and maybe you're here this morning and you find yourself in that situation. You know that, but you have no idea why. Why was it necessary for him to do so? When you walk someone through that, and even the opportunities I've had to walk people through that and do that bridge diagram, and then you see the light come on, that's the reason why. Because Christ was the only one who could restore us to God by paying the penalty for our sins. It's a beautiful thing. That's what Paul is doing here with the Thessalonians, with the Bereans. He's walking them through the Scriptures and he's showing them why it's necessary that Jesus had to die. Not only that, but he is showing them, you see in the text, that this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now again, many people hear those words, but perhaps never fully grasp them. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? You know, some people might respond by saying, well, fine, you know, different people have different opinions about who Jesus was. And I guess the main thing is that we understand that he was an important messenger of God and try to follow his teachings. You know, some people may believe he was the Christ. Some people believe he's a prophet. Some people believe he was a, a great moral philosopher. The main thing is that we kind of obey his teachings and understand that he was an important figure in history. 
But you see, that's the reason why it's so important. And if you're, you're not a Christian or you're not sure you're a Christian and you're here this morning, that's why it's so important for you to start reading the Bible. As Christians, that's why it's so important for us to come alongside people and encourage them to read the Bible and help them understand the Bible. Because when people actually start reading the Bible, oftentimes they are shocked, right? Because when they actually start reading the Bible, what they find is that that's not even a possibility. It's not even a possibility that Jesus was just some great moral philosopher or some great teacher. This man repeatedly equated himself with God, repeatedly identified himself as the Savior of the world. And so either he was right, and he was who he claimed to be, or he was nuts. But there is no in-between. He is far more than just a prophet, or he is nothing. What we see here in, 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 as we look at Paul, as we look at Luke and their understanding of Scripture, is that the apostles understood that the Scriptures were the Word of God. And that it is through these Scriptures that we understand who Jesus is and His plan to redeem us and give us life through Him. So my friends, if you're here this morning and you want to know God, or you want to help others know God, then you see from our text the absolute central place of God's Word in one coming to know God and have a relationship with Him. Now, second, we see from our passage, God's Word, we see its ministry. So its nature and its ministry. Now, as we look at its ministry, look there in verses 1 through 3, and then also 10 through 13. So starting in verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia... They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And then skip down to verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing, as well as men. <clears throat> um, okay, oh, and I'm sorry, let me read verse 13 as well. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now, what I want us to see here in these verses as we think about the ministry of the Word is as Paul went to Thessalonica and as he went to Berea, we want to ask the question, what is it that Paul did with this Word? So he believed that the Scriptures were the Word of God. He believed it was from the Scriptures that the Gospel was revealed to us. So now as he ministers to these folks in Thessalonica, as he ministers to these folks in Berea, what is it that he does with this Word? And what you want to do to see... What Paul does with the word is just follow the verbs that are in the text. So notice, in his ministry in Thessalonica, in verse 2, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. In verse 3, he explained the Scriptures to them. In verse 3 again, he proved things to them from the Scriptures. In verse 4, he persuaded them with the Scriptures. And then in terms of his ministry in Berea, he proclaimed the Word of God to them. 
So here we get a good sense of what Paul does with the Word of God, how he ministers the Word of God to these people. Let's take each one. Notice in verse 2 that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So Paul didn't just quote Scripture. Rather, he provoked them to think about the Scriptures, to see connections in the Scriptures, and to consider the implications of various passages and text. He also, in verse 3, explained the Scriptures to them. So he would present them with a passage, or he would present them with a text, and then he would help unfold the meaning of that passage and text in a way that was understandable and accessible to his audience. In verse 3, you see that he is proving certain things from the Scriptures. So Paul has a point to make. It's not his own point. It's a point that is clearly emerges from Scripture. But then he makes use of Scripture in order to make that point. And then verse 4, you see that he persuades them from Scripture. And this is important to note because we see here that Paul wasn't trying to indoctrinate them in the sense that he just wanted them to blindly follow whatever it was that he said. You know, sometimes this is an objection when you talk about this type of ministry of the Word. And someone might say, well, if someone starts talking about the Bible like that, then they must just want us to leave our brains at the door and just kind of blindly follow fables and whatever their personal opinions are. And some people may approach the ministry of the Word that way, but that is not a biblical, faithful ministry of the Word. A biblical and faithful ministry of the Word does not equal blind indoctrination. Rather, as we will see here in a few moments, the Bereans were anything but gullible or unthinking. And Paul did not want them to be. He did not want them to be gullible or unthinking. Rather, through careful and patient explanation of God's Word and reasoning from the Scriptures and encouraging them to think through the Scriptures, then they were persuaded. So Paul's intention was to persuade them from the Scriptures. Notice finally that he proclaimed the Scriptures to them. This is particularly spoken of in Berea in verse 13. So if we were to think about the ministry of the Word in terms of a spectrum, on one end we might say there's indoctrination. That's the idea of just kind of proclaiming something and expecting people to blindly follow. The other extreme, though, would be indifference or relativism. What do I mean by that? Unfortunately, some people, when they approach the Scriptures, they speak about the Scriptures in such a way that it's uh, as though they believe it's impossible to arrive at the meaning of Scripture. Or maybe they're indifferent to arriving at the meaning of Scripture. How might someone do this? Well, they might say, you know, this is the basic attitude they would approach the text. Well, you know, this is my reading of the text. But, you know, you may not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's fine. You have your reading, I have my reading, we all have our own understanding of the passage. It doesn't really matter what you finally believe. What really matters is that we're on a journey of discovering truth for ourselves. My friends, that is not the way Paul approached the Scriptures. Paul's presentation of the gospel was reasoned and he explained from the Scriptures and he proved from the Scriptures and he persuaded from the Scriptures, but he also spoke with a certain degree of confidence because he knew that these Scriptures were the Word of God and he was persuaded that by the help of the Spirit and a careful reading of the Scriptures that we could arrive at the truth being revealed in these Scriptures. 
And so he proclaimed them authoritatively. As we consider Paul's ministry in Thessalonica and his ministry of the word at Berea and how he reasoned and persuaded and proved and explained and proclaimed the Scriptures, it is our desire that this type of ministry of the word would be central in our life here at Berea. And if it's to be central in our life here at Berea, one of the things we see in Scripture is that it has to start with and it has to be central in the preaching of the church. And I'll just tell you, this is my goal each Sunday. This is what I'm after. I may not always hit that goal. I may not always succeed. But this is my genuine desire. Is that when I stand before you on Sunday mornings, we'd open the Bible, and I would seek to reason with you from the Scriptures, and explain the Scriptures to you, and prove certain points from the Scriptures, and persuade you, and proclaim the Word of God. If it starts with the preaching, then it should extend out into other ministries of the church. So the ministry of the Word should extend out into our home groups in which we gather together around the Word to read and to ask questions and discuss and learn. And then it should extend beyond our home groups in which we personally seek God in reading the Word in our own personal lives and then share that Word with each other and those who are outside of our church community. Listen, my friends, other things may be offered as a substitute for this ministry, for this ministry of the Word, but nothing can truly replace a faithful ministry of the Word in the life of a local church. Sometimes folks will ask me, being a pastor, sometimes folks will ask me, what is it that I should really look for in a church? If I'm considering attending a church or I want to join a church, what is it that I should look for in a local church? And biblically speaking, I would say that this matter is on top of the list. Actually, we give out a book in our uh, Berean Basics class, which is kind of an introduction of who we are as a church and tells you more about uh, what our vision and mission is as a church. Uh, In that class, we give out a book called Church Matters. It's written by Joshua Harris. And in one of the chapters of that book, which is really helpful, he goes through what are some of the things you should be asking when you're thinking about attending or joining a church. He has top 10 questions, top 10 important questions to ask. And the first question he says that you should ask is this, is this a church where God's word is faithfully taught? And then he goes on to say, and listen to this, it's kind of a long quote, but I think it's really helpful. He says, quote, be careful here. At first glance, most churches will appear to teach God's word. You'll see it printed in the bulletin, written on the walls or sprinkled through the services. But these references to Scripture don't necessarily mean a church is submitted to God's Word. Some teachers start their messages with the Bible, but it's only a jumping-off point to share their own opinions. I should know. I used to be one of those teachers. I used to build entertaining messages around engaging illustrations, stories, or ideas I had. Always peppered my messages with Scripture, but Scripture wasn't the message, the meat of the message. It was only the seasoning. Since then, God has mercifully helped me to grow in my understanding of faithful preaching. I've learned that the best thing I can do for my church is to build a message on the teaching of a particular passage, to draw my points and emphasis from the points and emphasis of the passage. This approach is often called expositional preaching. The preacher's task is simply to unleash what God's Word has said to God's people. So your first priority to look for a church 
So your first priority is to look for a church whose teaching is driven by confidence in the authority of Scripture, end of quote. And I would just say, on this point, I believe Joshua Harris is dead on. We see it here in Acts 17. We see it throughout the book of Acts. We see it throughout the New Testament. The centrality of God's Word in gospel ministry. And just to make this point again, the reason why the ministry of the Word should be central in preaching is because the ministry of the Word should be central in our everyday lives and ministries. If you want to share the gospel with a non-Christian... Talk with them about the claims of Jesus from the Bible. Or better yet, invite them to start reading the Bible with you. If you want to disciple a young believer, start meeting with them and start reading the Bible together or doing a Bible study together. The Word of God is central to all genuine, faithful Christian ministry. Now, we want to consider third... It's work, okay? So we've considered its nature, its ministry, and third, we want to consider God's Word, its work. Now, we see this in verse 4, and then we also see this again in verses 10 through 12. Look at verse 4, and we read these words. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the uh, devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And then if you look down in verses 10 through 12, we read these words. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Now what we did when we looked at the ministry of God's word was we looked at the verbs in the text that spoke of what Paul did with God's word, right? And we learned about how he ministered God's word by looking at those verbs. Now what I want us to do here in this section is I want us to consider the verbs that describe how the Thessalonians and the Bereans received God's Word. And in doing so, we'll learn something about how we should receive the ministry of the Word. Notice Thessalonica. Those in Thessalonica, in verse 4, we see that they were persuaded by God's Word. And then if you look at the Bereans, you see in verse 11 that they received God's Word with all eagerness. And also in verse 11, we see that they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And in verse 12, we see that they believed. Now, I want us to consider, first of all, the Bereans, um, not only because our church is named Berea Baptist Church, but also because they become a model, really, we see here in our text, a model, an example for how all Christians should rightly receive the Word of God. You know, when you first came to our church, perhaps you thought that was an odd name, Berea Baptist Church. Oftentimes people ask me, and maybe you've had this experience, how do you pronounce that? Or how do you spell that? What is, what is that all about? But this is actually where it comes from, Acts chapter 16, or Acts chapter 17. We desire to be good Bereans, to rightly receive the Word of God. And notice how the Bereans received the Word of God in verse 11. They received the Word with all eagerness. So among the Bereans, 
there was an eagerness for the Word of God. There was an appetite for the Word of God. They longed for it. They wanted it. They wanted to hear it. You know, if you're here this morning, you might say, and whether you're a Christian or you're not sure if you're a Christian, you might say, honestly, if I were to say, I would have to say, I'm not sure I really have an eagerness for God's Word or or even a desire for God's Word. And if that's the case, it's good to acknowledge that. Because one of the things you have to realize in, in understanding this concept of having an eagerness for the Word of God is that it is a gift. And therefore, we must pray for it. We must seek God for it. It's not something that you can kind of create on your own. In fact, the psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, verse 36, Incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart to your word. Why would the psalmist pray that? Incline my heart, bend my heart, move my heart towards your word. Because he knew that unless God worked in his heart, he would have no desire for it. And so he prays, give me a hunger, give me a desire for your word so that I would receive it with all eagerness. The scriptures, Jesus speaks of the scriptures as as bread, as, as life, right? You have to eat it, you have to take it in and it will give you life. But for some of us, if we're honest, we have no taste buds for it. So we have to pray that God would give us such a desire. Not only did they receive it with all eagerness, but you notice in verse 11 as well, they examined, once they received it with all eagerness, they examined the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. This is actually one of the reasons why they are considered more noble than the Thessalonians, right? Because they were particularly careful to listen, to read, to study, to discuss and discern whether what the apostles were saying were consistent with the Word of God. And Paul says, Paul doesn't take that as they're undermining his authority, right? Who are you to question me? That's not how Paul responds. Paul says, I love that, right? Bible's open, they're reading them, they're trying to discern what's being said here, they're listening, they're taking it in, they're examining it. Paul says, yes, that's the way to receive the Word of God. Now listen, this is one of the reasons, and and, and maybe you've wondered why, when we gather together as a church, why do we take time to read passages of Scripture in our service? Why do we take time then to explain those passages? And why am I always kind of pointing back to the text? Do you see it in verse 2? Do you see it in verse 10? Look at verse 13. This is the reason Because a faithful ministry of the Word of God is not only proclaiming the truth, but it's teaching and modeling how to study the Bible in order that others might discover truth for themselves. A faithful ministry of the Word is helping other people see it. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, look, see it. And as they're reading and as they're looking and as they're discerning and examining, Paul commends them. Because they take seriously their responsibility to listen, look, read, and discern. This is how the the Bereans receive the word, and they're commended for doing so. But notice also, ultimately, the responses of the Thessalonians and the Bereans. You see, in verse 4, the Thessalonians were persuaded. And then you see, in verse 12, that the Bereans believed. Now, as we've looked at how they received the word, we focus particularly on the Bereans, but 
In terms of looking at the ultimate response to the word, I want us to focus on the Thessalonians. It's really fascinating. Here in verse here in these verses, Paul simply says that they were persuaded. Okay? But then later on in Paul's ministry, he will write a letter to the church in Thessalonica. And in writing this letter to the church in Thessalonica, he reflects on his prior ministry among them and when they initially received the word. And listen to how he describes their response to God's word. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, he writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So this is what Paul says. When I came to you in Thessalonica, I shared the word with you, and you received it not as the word of men, but you received it as what it really is, the word of God. Now that has huge implications. Do you understand that what this means is that when we receive the ministry of the word, whether it's through preaching or teaching or discussion or personal conversation with another, inasmuch as what is spoken is consistent with an accurate interpretation of the scriptures, we are receiving in those moments the very words of God. That is an amazing thing. So, so we have a responsibility to listen. We have a responsibility to discern. But once we understand that what is being spoken is consistent with and an accurate reflection of the Scriptures, then we should and must receive it for what it is, the Word of God, and respond in faith. That's why in the Christian tradition, the preaching of God's Word is so central and important. Because when we gather together on Sunday mornings around God's Word, we are not gathering together to hear the voice of a man. We are praying and asking for God's grace that we would in fact hear the words of God. We're gathering around the Word and as much as by God's grace I'm out of the way and it's being interpreted accurately, you are hearing the God of the universe speak into your life. So church is a big deal. Preaching is a big deal. We gather to hear God's Word. And as we do, we're changed by it. Now notice as well, as they receive this Word, notice that in receiving this Word and being changed by this Word, that it was a process. Okay, So this is another important observation to make at this point both for the Thessalonians and the Bereans, receiving and being changed by this word was a process. So notice this for the Thessalonians. Look there in verse 2. You see, on three Sabbath days, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So this is three weeks. This would be like three for us, if we're thinking in our context, three Sundays. He's speaking to them the word. And over those three Sundays, finally we see in verse 4 that they were persuaded. It was a process for them, though. You see with the Bereans in verse 11 that they received the word and they were examining it. They were discerning whether it was true or not. And then finally, in verse 12, they believed. So again, there was a process that took place. The work of God's word is a process. Now, the reason why this is important for us to understand is because when we think about 
the ministry of the word and we think about its work, we need to understand if we are to faithfully minister God's work, how it, if we're to faithfully minister God's word, how it does its work in people's heart. And oftentimes the way it works in people's hearts is a process and that should affect the way we do ministry of the word. Hopefully we will have points of contact in our own community outside of the four walls of this church where we'll be able to minister the Word of God to others. And we should be willing and excited about walking folks through a process of understanding God's Word. Think about this in particular as it relates to non-Christians. Perhaps we're speaking to someone who comes from a very different worldview and background, perspective, maybe a different moral code of life. More times than not, we need to understand that as we share the Word of God with them, they are not going to be converted the first time they hear the Gospel. There may be situations like that, but it would be unusual. In fact, it may take much longer than just three weeks, as it did here on one occasion with the Apostle Paul. And we should be willing and gracious and patient as Paul and Silas were to walk people, lovingly walk people through that process. In fact, if we go to the letter that Paul would later write to the church in Thessalonica, we learn that Paul was not only sharing God's Word with the Thessalonians, but notice how he describes his ministry among them. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, he describes how he ministered to them in Acts 17. And he says, I became affectionately desirous of you. We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So Paul is not only sharing with them a word, he is sharing with them his life. And in time, under the loving, patient instruction of the apostles, some are genuinely converted and a church was established. This is our desire We want to encourage folks, and in particular, we want to encourage those who may not yet be Christians to feel the freedom to question, examine, discern, and respond to the message of the Bible. There's a missiologist named Ed Stetzer. He wrote a book a few years ago called The Missional Code, Breaking the Missional Code. And on this point, he wrote, Quote, followers of Christ must have a heart for engaging and loving people of different values, experiences, and worldviews. They must also be equipped to engage people who are both far away and near to Christ. When followers of Christ have the heart and understand how to love and engage those outside, along with a safe place for people to experiment with the Christian faith, life change becomes a part of the culture. End of quote. And that's what we want. By God's grace, we want to create a culture of transformation. A culture of transformation for Christians and for non-Christians who are coming to understand the Christian faith. A culture of transformation that is inspired by a faithful, loving, winsome, persuasive ministry of the Word. In which the good news of Jesus Christ that is revealed in the Word becomes beautifully clear and compelling. Let me just say in closing as well that if you're here this morning and you're not sure whether you're a Christian or maybe you'd say, I'm not a Christian, you're trying to figure all this stuff out about the Bible and Jesus and how to have a relationship with God, I hope, as you've even considered this passage this morning, 
I hope that you would want a culture like that as well. That you would want to be a part of a culture like that. Where you have the opportunity in community to learn about God and to know God through His Word. Let's pray by God's grace that He would make us such a culture and such a people. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word and that You have not left us to ourselves, but that You have spoken. Father, help us to grasp the weight and the glory and the wonder and the beauty of that. And Lord, we do pray that You would incline our hearts to Your Word. Father, we pray that as we turn to Your Word, that we would be eager to receive it, And in reading it and examining it and studying it and listening to it, that we would be transformed for your glory. And then, Father, we pray that by your grace we would be faithful to lovingly and graciously share it with others. And that we would see others changed and transformed by this word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed the good news of